Welcome to Ethereal Underground. I'm your host, TNT, and we're at another episode. Well, we have a returning guest. I'm able to get in touch with some of the original guests and have a part two. And I'm really looking forward to this one. And if you recall, it's uh, Asha. So she's the one that had the interesting story about her careers over the years, growing up in St. Louis, and then the schooling she had, one of the early days of computer programming. And if, if I get any of this wrong, Asha can correct me. But uh, she had an exciting opportunity in that field, had moved to hustle, bustling New York, downtown New York, was there for many years and then transition out west Arizona California and then ended up what she's doing now working as a patient advocate especially those dealing with rare brain cancers and uh, she talked quite a bit about that and that interview got a lot of positive response a lot of comments about uh, Asha and the type of person she is, her beautiful personality, and it was one of the highly rated interviews. So I'm glad to have her back for part two. Now, just like part one, this is unscripted. So this is free flowing. That always works best. People are less nervous. And with it unscripted, and don't know how the show turns out, but the shows always turn out fantastic. So with that being said, I want to welcome Asha to the Ethereal Underground audience how are you doing today uh wonderful very pleased to have you interview me again i i really appreciate it and i feel honored thank you well i'm happy you just didn't put color blocker on me <laughs> that's usually what happens with some of the get <laughs> people i try to do a part two or three and i i can't get through to them <laughs> <laughs> ah, maybe you ought to pay them more um is there anything like, let's say people didn't hear part one and they're mm -hmm. just tuning in to this interview, part two, would you want to do a quick 60 second recap of just who you are, what generation you are, where you are now, what you're, where you live and what your occupation is? Uh, sure. Uh, I'm a baby boomer. I'm going to be 70 years old in a few months. I uh, did an unusual thing and went to a technical trade school and studied computer programming during the Vietnam War <clears throat> and started in a computer career that I did for 26 years. Was uh, very much a workaholic. My joke is I was addicted to compilers. <laughs> and uh, Then as my life unfolded, I did uh, some major healing. I went to Tucson and did a lot of healing for about a decade and then came out to Southern California and uh, changed careers again. I was in architecture for 20 years, commercial construction. And then about uh, eight years ago, uh, my life entered the brain tumor, brain cancer, malignant brain tumor world. And I've been the um, patient advocate for the San Diego Brain Tumor Foundation for about 
seven years now. And so I work with uh, all ages who have a primary diagnosis of a brain tumor, which affects, drastically affects the entire family. And so whether it's a parent or an older sibling or a child or a grandparent, uh, it uh, very quickly shows uh, the holes and the brokenness of our Western American medical system. And so there's uh, much need for uh, the patients to have a lot of help with navigating their diagnosis and everything that revolves around it from medic informed medical decisions to a lot of social work type things that I do to help the patients and uh, also to be of support. We have support groups, visit them in their homes, visit, uh, accompany them to doctor visits and so forth. And uh, by far, most of the families that I work with, um, we, we end up losing the patient. So a lot, of, a lot of grief work, a lot of compassion, a lot of empathy, a lot of support. Now, uh, kind of a recap, because you went over this in the first interview. So this is for the sake of people hearing you for the first time. And I encourage you to go back into the archives and, okay. and uh, listen to part one. I know the answer, but for the new listeners, what got you into brain tumor and being a patient advocate? Do you have any personal reasons why that was the case? Uh, yes. My second husband is a retired battalion chief out here in Chula Vista, San Diego, 34 years, very loved, and uh, was diagnosed eight years ago on May 1st, which happened to be his birthday, with a brain tumor, much to our shock, except that <clears throat> firefighters are sustaining a much higher than normal ratio of brain cancer and brain tumors. So anyway, he had neurosurgery within a couple of weeks. They don't give you much time to do much research. And he had a, an infarction, which is a fancy term for a stroke during the neurosurgery. So ended up in ICU and rehabilitation for a very long time. So he went in a whole man and came out in a wheelchair with a fair amount of deficits from the neurosurgery and has worked diligently on rehabilitation for years. And uh, if you were to see him today compared to right after a surgery, everybody would be shocked at how he has improved and recovered considering what his body's been through. And we have other patients like that also that are, it is just amazing what two or three or four years of ardent rehabilitation can do. It, it, it is amazing how the body can heal. But then again, we lose a lot of them before they have that much time to heal. Oh, I see. So the good news is he's still with us and he's mm -hmm. doing uh, better uh, than at the time of his surgery. Yes. Yeah. The, the, everything with a brain tumor is where it's located in the brain because then the uh, clinical psychological oncology specialists know based on where the tumor is, what deficits the patient is going to come out with. You know, is it going to be sight? Is it going to be hearing? Is it going to be word finding? Is it going to be cognitive abilities? Is it going to be speech? You get my drift. And um, they yeah. were 100% accurate when they sat down with me and said, this is, this is who you're taking home. They knew the behavior. They knew the road to recovery. They knew 
all the deficits emotionally, uh, physiologically. I, I was, I've always been stunned at how accurate they were, but it's, I mean, they at least know that much. It's just not always easy news to hear that you're not bringing home the same person that went into the hospital. I so, see. Yeah, his deficits were exactly like they said. An example is, um, you know, uh, we call it in the in the brain tumor world, a lack of filters. So a lot of brain tumor patients after their surgery and, and so forth will just blurt out their reaction and they'll get very enraged instantly. No motor control or emotional control. And in his case, it only lasts one, two, in a few rare cases, three minutes, and then, and then he's he's okay. But it's uh, it's almost a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. He'll just he'll just rage, and then it stops because that part of his brain is no longer there. It and sounds like uh, it sounds very similar to a commuter in Chicago. Uh, absolutely, absolutely, yes. <laughs> Only you know in Chicago, I think they'll say, "Oh, well, that's just somebody with turrets that doesn't want to get down to the south side of Chicago." <laughs> right. So that uh, that condition has that been able to improve any over the years? Was We're it both used to it. It happens less. Uh, it's very challenging for a brain tumor patient to deal with the. I hope it's okay if I say this word the shrapnel of what's happened to them. Mm. So when their face doesn't look the same and they're limping and they don't have, they can't walk anymore. And they, for instance, Jackson was a lovely guitarist and he can't play the guitar anymore. And it's been very sad for him. And um, he doesn't have his voice. He doesn't have the same voice. His vocal cords were disconnected by a fall he had. And um, mm. so when he can't sing and play the guitar, there's just sadness. And that's just an example. We have a lot of, especially women that are very embarrassed at how they look. Their face doesn't look the same anymore. Their their hair growth pattern is different. They've had skull re reconstruction surgery. Mm. These are very courageous souls. People that are living with brain cancer and brain tumors. Oh my, mm. what, what, a, what a special group to just see the spirit in them hanging on is just amazing. Yeah. And then we're... We're probably assuming that these individuals that have this condition, they, they go through surgery that it sounds like they probably have a lot of loving family support that's got to be a, a key role in their recovery and their coping or readjustment, wouldn't you think? If well, that's what you, that's what the average person in our society would think. It does not happen to be the reality. Uh, a percentage of our families absolutely stay with the loved one, particularly if it's a father or mother with um, older children. You know, they're in middle school, they're in high school, the family's still pretty cohesive. But I will say something we do not realize in our society is the fear of death. We're a death-centric society. We don't want to address death and dying. And there is something very scary about brain cancer and brain tumors. And we will see family members disappear. Mm. They don't want to talk to the patient. They want nothing to do with them. They're a brother or a sister, a, a, a parent, a marriage mate. There are, there are people that come out of their neurosurgery very uh, altered. And their marriage mate walks away from the marriage. And wow. there they are. 
Yeah. Oh, it's, you know, some of the cases I'm working on are just that, you know, I work with and, and love. It's just oh, it's so sad to be dealing with such a horrific diagnosis, many times knowing you don't have a long, a long time to live. And then the family has disintegrated and you don't have support. Mm. And unless you are abjectly wealthy, you cannot afford in-home care, much less nursing care. Yeah. So that reality is absolutely the most difficult. The most difficult is when people realize they're not going to get help. The, the family, if, if the family doesn't make an immediate shift and go into the caregiving of that patient, there's really almost no other solution. Yes, there's assisted living, but out here in California, and I, I know you have listeners all around the world, we are looking at anywhere from $8,000 to $18,000 a month to be in an assisted living facility. And a lot of the brain tumor patients need a fair amount of nursing. And so that either adds to it or the assisted home living centers say, no, you're you're too ill. We can't take you. So imagine, you yeah. know, you're just cranking along here in your life in the United States and boom, you have to cough up ten or $12,000 a month for somebody that's come out of neurosurgery with a lot of deficits. That is, that's a, that's a life changer. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah, I wouldn't know. You hate to think about that, but if there's a, a percentage of family that bail and they probably, the person's not the same, will need a lot of time and energy and recoup mm -hmm. and the financial hit and some mm -hmm. people just cowardly bolt, bolt. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and another thing to throw in, um, how it affects people in their, with their job and their career. You know, I have scientists and people in biomedicine out here. I have educators, I have, uh, school principals, they can't function in their job anymore. And, uh, very few companies are understanding. I've only seen one. I've only seen one really understanding company in six years. Now, are you are you referencing where the the spouse, the healthy spouse, their job or corporation not understanding the time and energy they're going to need to support their spouse? Yes. I've only seen one company where they're very understanding of the marriage partner taking care of her husband, who is has wow. had a really, really tough number of surgeries and incredibly deficited. He, he requires complete caregiving and her company has not fired her. They have been very understanding. They've been working with her incredibly well. It's the only time I've ever seen it. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And they're not, they're not firing her. They're going to keep her. They know she's going to lose her husband and they, yeah. they want to have her when that's after that, a bit of grieving and so forth. You know, I mean, you grieve for a long time, but imagine eight years of all these families and, and how difficult it is. Yeah. Well, you know, when you mentioned that I had a, a, a good friend, Roland, who uh, succumbed to cancer. It wasn't brain but it started as a uh, colon cancer and then spread to his liver. Mm -hmm. And then uh, mm -hmm. as he went through the, the regular treatments, in this case, surgery, and then 
chemotherapy, he he went that route. And uh, they mentioned he would have a little over a year, one to two years. So they're they're pretty spot on. And then he slowly starts to deteriorate. Mm -hmm. And the company he worked for was very supportive. Never fired him. Kept him on payroll and kept him on the company corporate insurance. He left three boys, ages 18. Uh, well, at that time, that's how old they were when he's diagnosed. But when he died, 20, 19, 17, and 13. Four, four boys. So um, that, was, that was very hard for me because I would travel... Uh, two hours one way and I would spend the weekends to uh, spend uh, time with them and then they the corporation he, he worked for which was in um, petroleum industry they they provided uh, industrial piping for the oil natural gas industry mm -hmm. that uh, th their their uh, kindness kept the family from absolute bankruptcy so that's that's the first time i personally saw um and what a tremendous help that was i only met a few because once in a while with Rollin, I, when he was healthy i would visit him at his office and we'd go out to lunch because it, it was a two-hour travel but um i can't imagine if the health benefits bailed or the surviving spouse getting harassment that you need to keep up the work schedule. Otherwise we're going to let you go. What a double whammy that would be. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm. Well, that's why they say that really uh, the health is the most important thing, obviously over assets like homes, cars, or pensions. It's, it's your health. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, having a certain measure of health, then you can have some, some kind of normalcy. But when you have anything major like that. Mm -hmm. One thing that we can't understand, my director and I work closely together. Uh, of course, it's an opinion and you can hear this in other situations. We find it unconscionable that a trial medicine that costs 40 and 42 and 46 thousand dollars a month is denied someone who's dying and can't pay for it. We we just do not understand why the pharmaceutical industry is so situated and uh, structured that you either cough up that money or you're out. Hmm. It does happen. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard it. I've heard of it. Yeah. And we see it in our world because brain brain tumors are not abundant enough to be a good moneymaker. So the medical machine, which I certainly have my reactions about, you know, they'll look at prostate cancer, breast cancer, because it's so prevalent and they don't see enough return on the money for brain tumors. So we're, we're seeing patients being treated with the same standard of care this year as they were treated eight years ago yeah they're getting the 1972 dodge dart <laughs> yeah. technology yeah. 
with an AM radio and no power steering. Yeah. Now there are some trials that are that are more open and more successful. There's one right now that's coming out of the West Coast, and the state of California said it is looking so promising that anybody with a certain pathology by default must be prescribed it no matter what the cost. So on the other side of the seesaw, that is a positive. It, it's a, a trial chemo that is working quite quite successfully with one particular type of type diagnosis. But again, that's only in California. Let's just say you were in another state. That's the, That state doesn't have that state legislation to mandate that the patient with the brain tumor deserves that trial drug. Oh, I see. So yeah. then they would that they would have to cough up whatever mm -hmm. the retail price is. Yes. Which would be cost mm -hmm. prohibitive. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. A lot of people don't realize that the pharmaceutical industry is in the world is paid for by America. So America pays for all the research and development. And then after it becomes more of an established drug, it's much more affordable and used by the rest of the world. So the United States is carrying the brunt of the research and development oh, okay. financial to the world. Yeah. Huh. Mm -hmm. Well, that's what, a generalization, but you know, it's kind of how it works. A lot of people don't realize that. Well, what do you think that to uh, transition not that, that you mentioned that uh, I'll, I'll try to bridge that into what do you think the state of the United States economy is? Where do you think it's heading? The dollar, the banking crisis, the BRICS nations, the the PAC that's de-dollarizing. What's your view on the economy and where that's heading? And if there is a reset, let's say a financial reset, and the dollar loses its reserve currency, what do you think is going to happen to research and development of medicines? Hmm, excellent question. I've been following uh, geopolitical, financial, worldwide dynamics for about 45 years. Mm -hmm. Probably started when I was in New York City and knew a lot of people in the financial industry, stock market and so forth. Home of Wall Street, um, yeah. Yeah, I I had a, a few girlfriends whose fathers were very, very prominent and uber wealthy. And, uh, you know, I was their bridesmaids and things like that. I, I wasn't wealthy like they were, but they were. And uh, so I started to understand the inner connections of the world's, world's political scene, scene and world banking and have been watching the slow demise of it since the early early 80s however we're at the tail end now and um i mean this is just preface is my opinion you know anybody can stop listening or not agree with me and and i always like to say for today this is where i am because i'm a huge believer in what i call making a bubble or a cloud anything i hear that i don't know what to think about i make it a cloud in my thought process, and I just see what magnetizes or demagnetizes, what fuels and feeds that that concept or that comment or that statistic and what debates it. And I just continue to re 
refresh and reprioritize and readjust my understanding. So I'm I'm very very open to uh, concepts and ideas, but I think that we are watching the demise of the petrodollar. Personally, I'm very happy about that because I don't like what the military industrial industry of the West has done in fomenting wars and causing economic deprivation throughout the world. So I, I don't think the petrodollar is going to last much longer. I have friends all around the world from earlier in my computer career. And what we're told here in America is not what's going on in most of the world. I don't watch television. Yeah. Don't watch mainstream media news. Don't read the New York Times. You know, it's not, that's not my source of, of information. Uh, I know what they're saying get enough snippets to know what their position is, but I don't agree, agree with it, nor do I give them credence as a source of accurate in, input. Right. And I'm, I, I don't think we're going to get through this summer before there's a serious uh, shift in the flow of the petrodollar and how the banks are working. I'm, I'm watching so many bank mergers and bank closures and being eaten up by other banks, mergered up, mergered sideways, you know, banks changing their names. Something's obviously going on. And when you look at our sheer currency, our 20 and 10 and five and $1 bills, and they're absolutely dilapidated because no new currency has been printed for years, something's going on. So I, I personally think there are a couple of battling and I do think there's, I do think it's a, it's a battle going on between who's going to be the new currency on, on the planet. And I have my hopeful view, hopeful views, but I know there are two very different camps. Um, they don't see eye to eye. Their, their paradigms are quite uh, opposite or, you know. <laughs> dissimilar i'm been following bricks for a long time i've been very excited about it and uh how on earth can our planet with its population and its diversity continue to have just a few members a few countries claiming that they're at the top of the top of the pyramid and they get the percentage of the votes whether it's economic or, you know, the central banking system or the United Nations. It's so lopsided that something was bound bound to break. Um, and our our cost of living is non-sustainable. I, I, I often say that my uncle was an architectural sales rep, more, more talented and more specialized than I, but he had a wife and two children that he sent through college grandchildren he sent through college, living in upper middle class, lower upper class lifestyle, lovely cars, etc. I had a similar job, but I was a generation behind. No family, no car, did not buy a property until I was 58 years old. Um, absolutely one sixth to one eighth the lifestyle of my uncle with a similar job in one generation. 
Yeah. Well, now what about the generations younger than me? The average young couple in California have to work for 21 years to make enough money for a down payment on a home. A down uh, payment. You're, they yeah. have to make a down payment from your children are in college or finishing college. This is unsustainable. Right. So to go from adults, uh, people born in the depression and what their lifestyle for raising their family and then myself as a baby boomer now, you know, retire, retirement age. And now looking at the next generation, um, it's unsustainable. I don't know if that answered your question. Well, uh, it did. So a couple things. Yeah, the, you have the the United States or dollar hegemony being uh, challenged. And mm -hmm. uh, that was kind of a a bully or a, a belly club to where if, if you didn't act a certain way, then you'd be sanctioned, uh, barred from the SWIFT clearing system or trade mm -hmm. military uh, sanctions and the uh, many nations, 150 plus decided to join BRICS to get away from that intimidation, that, mm -hmm. uh, that bullying or inter interference. Yep. And then I think that I'm not too much of a scholar, but I think uh, in application of the, the BRICS nations to join that is you would have to back your currency with some type of commodity, natural resource, mm -hmm. goods or service. You just can't simply print to oblivion. So you have to back it mm -hmm. up with something. Uh, and the amount of global trade is now less than 60% using the US dollar and declining every 30 days. So okay. if that's the case, you're looking at hundreds of trillions of dollars that would come back to the shore homeland of United States, North America, and then overnight, the United States would turn into a upper third world nation mm -hmm. because of uh, the domestic. Yeah, and if you look population. at the, yeah, and if you look at the shipping routes and the goods and the containers coming into the docks on on the east and the west coast and in down near Houston, um, goods just aren't coming in. So you know, what's what's going to be on the shelves? I've, I've been watching for over two years now what retail stores are still struggling to stay alive the merchandise lessening and lessening mm -hmm. the aisles getting wider the yeah. goods are definitely old you know yeah and it's like do people not see this do they not see that there's a huge economic shift going on no that's yeah. well you and i know that uh when i talk about joe six-pack or uh, <laughs> yeah. Sally, Sally getting her nails done, getting her favorite high-end cup of coffee. That yeah, that's it's too terrifying to face reality mm -hmm. or try to develop uh, Plan Bs and Plan Cs to mm -hmm. prepare what's going to be coming home to roost here at, at, in the United States. But you, you had an interesting. We have uh, maybe about. 20 minutes left. Do you want to talk a little bit about, let me, let me set, set the question. All right. This way. 
you and I, when we've spoken privately, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think that the two of us are of the mindset that we think humanity definitely needs outside help or non-human help. If it's left to just the yep. current banking system, governance, academia, and military, we're doomed because we we have a lot of corruption and oppression and no one goes to jail in those circles and they're literally getting away with murder. So for us to have some type of justice and, and correction, it would have to be from a non-human source. That's that's what I think. If if you're similar to that, what do you think a, uh, let's say an off-planet or non-human solution would be because you'd mentioned before, and I don't know if we have enough time to talk about this, you can say yes or no, about quantum. Yes. The digital. I'm into quantum terms. everything. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I personally believe that uh, the term a quantum uh, digital financial system, I think, is a, a, a categorizing term. It doesn't have to, I don't know that that's what the final name of it is going to be, but in my studying of it, what started to really pique my interest was that this is a system that is not totally man-made designed, human being on earth designed, but that it is sophisticated enough that it includes galactic intervention galactic design and that it is the way commerce exists through other civilizations in our galaxy and that in order for earth to be included the first requisite requisite is that we stop killing no more war stop killing and controversial it is stop aborting our our infants so no more killing, period. We have to stop killing as a species before we're going to be allowed into the galactic realm and accepted in as kind of new kids on the block, but with tremendous benefits of uh, technology that includes healing and uh, cleaning up ills that are on the planet, such as pollution and disparity of uh, huge populations. And that really made sense to me. And it does not preclude anything of a more spiritual nature such as saints or angels or different levels of the angelic realm that they also are involved in this and looking forward to a renaissance happening on the planet in which something must be addressed for the negative influences that are causing the negative emotions and behavior of people. And once that is addressed, we will evolve into a higher dimensional being. Whether, you know, I, I don't, I'm totally okay with the terms of like third, fourth, fifth, sixth dimension. And yet I know it's far more complex than that. Each each of those levels has many sub-levels within it. It's quite a long journey to get from, let's say, lower fifth to higher fifth dimension existence. But the concept of we are on the precipice of leaving this dimension and the way life is on the planet and catapulting into uh, vastly higher 
standard of life all the way around. And that is, and it is predicated on not only no longer killing, but getting rid of the money system that is on the planet because it is absolutely backed by dark negative forces and yeah. has to go. It's, it's indebting people. And I believe we are watching that. It's thrilling. And if people really knew what was going on with what spiritual war and physical battling is going on on the planet, we would see that that is what's happening. We're having, we're in a spiritual war to get rid of dark forces. And I believe we are going to win because I believe we have galactic and spiritual and or if those are interchangeable terms that we have higher beings helping us and have over the years, but they're definitely involved now. And I've done much research and learned so much about these concepts that you will not learn in higher education in our Western civilization. It's not yeah. taught, it's not discussed. Yeah, because our uh, there's no question our, our global economic mercantile system and the banking is predatorial and uh, mm -hmm. dark energy based. So on on this financial system, could you describe how currency would work and how that's connected to the individual's behavior and consciousness? As I understand it, and and so that's all I can do is speak speak from my understanding because each person has their own paradigm, but our higher self, our higher, our subconscious and our higher being vibrates. It's unique. Each one of us has a unique vibrational pattern. It's likened to the epaulets on a military uniform. And you look at uh, some male or female all gussied up in their uniform and they have, you know, four rows of epaulets. And it says things like they're, they went through parachuting school and they were at a certain battle in Vietnam and, you know, they're, um, they've worked as a diplomat in certain areas and so forth. You read the epaulets and you have a history on that person. Well, our vibratory color and sound of our Akashic record or our DNA, which is unique, says everything about us, including our motivations, our history of all the incarnations that we've had, and it is who we are, and there's no changing it. <laughs> there's changing it as we continue to live and continue to act. But I, I could not have my aura read right now and suddenly make it a whole lot better. <laughs> it is what it is. Well, the quantum financial system is based on reading each person's aura and knowing what their value is what their value should have been and what they honestly merit to have put into their quantum ledger. So my comment is if you were a commercial realtor or a stockbroker in Manhattan, or you were changing dirty diapers in an old folks home with people that had dementia and were uh, challenged, Guess who's going to get more money put into their quantum ledger? It's going to be a little different from the way the world runs right now. And so once people are given what they have deserved in their life and their spiritual motivation and their creativity and their authenticity and their dedication and their self-discipline and so forth is rewarded, it's going to radically shift the standard of 
many people. And the quantum ledger is something that um, is debited or credited. Value is put into that ledger or you spend the value based on more than just a commodity price. So for instance, if just for conversation, if a passion of mine would be to help all the brain tumor families that I've been working with, the patients and their families, to help them get healed, then that would be a worthwhile cause for mankind and for humanity. It would be something positive. I might be given a whole lot of money to help an organization or to help a process to make that happen. But my next door neighbor might totally love organic gardening and that's what their passion is. Well, then they'd be given something beautiful in their quantum ledger so that they could grow organic food and help the community with that. However, if you've been dealing in pornography on the internet or you've been blackmailing people or you've been a mobster, you're not gonna have much money in your ledger. And so you're either gonna have to change your behavior or you're just not gonna make it. Or maybe you won't even make it through whatever is gonna determine the shift from third to fourth dimension that, you know, whether we're going to have a solar yeah. event, I'm very open to something like that. So, you know, while it sounds apocalyptic and it sounds, you know, fundamentalist, some people might say, let's just say that being able to read aura, each person's DNA, their Akashic record, and based on that, they are recalibrated with what their soul deserves is a whole different concept that includes justice, uh, restoration, um, hopefulness. You get my drift. Right. So this quantum ledger that's linked to the the Akashic record in, uh, in conjunction with your personality, your consciousness, and DNA, this is where you've been kind of uh, recorded or data has been gathering from childhood all the way up to where you are currently, correct? Correct. So just and, and I believe treated, that, it, like, yeah, go ahead. How like you I, treat your pets. Yeah. yeah, how you treat the pets and how you treated kids through elementary, junior high, high school, mm -hmm. how you treated uh, mm -hmm. family members, workmates, and then you're in adulthood, what you do for a living, uh, your motives for, for what you do. Mm -hmm. and And then if there's this, shift uh maybe some might not make it in this transition or uh those that do uh, with a new economic system the one that the illustration you had given where you're a, a caregiver with with adults and changing adult diapers and things of that nature you could be valued higher monetary credit system in that quantum ledger than someone who is uh, maybe a lawyer or CPA, mm -hmm. the previous economic system or the previous world reality. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that's really food for thought. As you really look at it, you start saying, oh, this law of one that works in the gal galactic realm so encourages working on your own spiritual progression and ascension because you're reward rewarded all the way around not just with a precious metal value in your quantum ledger, but you benefit yeah. all the way around. Where in the world as we know it today, you're not necessarily rewarded for being a loving, wonderful person. No, 
That's, that's not how the dark money system works on this planet. No. It's so it, it's its underpinnings are so evil and and so satanic and so dark that it it has to go. It's 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 incongruent with how our galaxy works. It's incongruent with the law of one, and it's certainly incongruent with millions of other civilizations that are doing very well. We're called the planet of conflict. One of the funniest things I heard recently was a, a speaker who said when the spacecrafts get ready to <clears throat> approach Earth because they're they're you know on the highways of the sky and they're getting ready to pass Earth on the left. And the commander says, uh, warning everybody, warning everybody, pull the Venetian blinds down and, and buckle up. We're going to speed by. We've got Earth coming up on the left. We've got the, with the worst slums. We've got, South, we've got South Chicago here on the left. We're just going to speed up and get right by. And I laughed so hard because I thought, yeah, I could see the I could see the galactic group looking at us that way, even though this is a, a planet of physical beauty. But yeah. Yeah, well, I, I was thinking of, uh, yeah, one of the books I'm working on, it's it's entitled uh, Welcome to Planet Dumbass. Yeah. <laughs> Only it's so violent to boot. I mean, it, the, the galactics, and of course, galactics have manifested, and there are. There are galactics walking the Earth right now that look like humans. Um, but uh, why on Earth would you risk coming down into the jungle of Earth with the weapons we have and the violence that we have? Yeah. I mean... I well, it's like, what what's, are their yeah, what's the Yelp rating of Earth? Oh, man. The one and a half it's... stars or something? <laughs> <laughs> Boy. And yeah. yet we really are. I, I, I believe that we are a Petri dish that much of the galaxy is exceedingly interested in watching because, mm -hmm. uh, as I understand it, we're going to go through an evolutionary mm -hmm. ascension from, let's say, roughly third to fifth dimension while staying alive and staying on this planet and that that is an experiment which is going to end up successful but is a brand new experiment and my understanding for today is that we've been seeded by about 22 different civilizations and those civilizations are watching us with rapt attention they are all in the front row of the theater watching this planet going are they going to make it What's look at this? Look at look at what we've put into this petri dish. This is the scientific project we've been working on for a long time. And how are they doing down there? Are they going to make it? And they're really rallying for us to make it. But tremendous interest because they're part of us. We're part of them. But we are considered in the galaxy. We are considered genetic DNA royalty because of our ability to manifest and be creators yeah. with our thought and our emotions and the mixture that we are. And we're, we're very, very special. And that's why we've been wanted by nefarious thugs in the universe. And also the creators of the, of the Petri dish that want us to succeed. Yeah. I, in fact, I just, I discussed that on today's outer limits episode. Mm -hmm. It's kind of kind of the theme of how we have the ability to uh, create our reality, and that's a very unique. very mm -hmm. unique and, and powerful gift, and that that we're allowed to have children uh, with the, the same skill set, but obviously something isn't quite right because 
in our uh, in our design, you could tell we're not designed to have hatred and prejudice, mm -hmm. war, anxiety, and strife. That's just not the the way our we're modeled. You can tell we're we're designed to be really more uh, artsy and creative, fine mm -hmm. arts with uh, laughter, po poetry, music. Uh, culinary skills, singing, uh, woodworking, building with our hands and uh, not strangling each other at each other's throat. So something definitely isn't right went haywire because we're, our potential is unlimited. Why would we be at a planet constantly at war? And then I don't know what the statistic is. It's something like... Uh, one percent. What is it? One percent has ninety-four percent of the wealth. It's it's really lopsided like that. Like one percent has ninety-two yeah, percent of the wealth. Yeah, it's not even that. I mean, there's something like, I think there's three thousand billionaires on the planet right now, and and they represent something like ninety-six percent of the world's the planet's wealth. Yeah, with like three thousand people. Yeah, that's so. It's, it's just, so cute. It's absurd. Right. So if you anyone, know what I meant, the, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. When I mentioned the uh, epaulette analogy, mm -hmm. uh, I wanted to share one of the most profound, uh, visceral reactions I ever had was understanding some uh, this galactic tale that when we are not in our bodily vessels, but when we're vibrating, when our DNA, our Akashic record is vibrating uh, and we meet any being in the galaxy, they right away know who we are. They right away see our color and sound vibration. And get this, we are such DNA royalty. We are so special in this galaxy that every being bows to the ground in obeisance, in obeisance when they meet any of us who have had even one incarnation on earth. And why? And here's here's the what really got me. We are revered for the courage that it has taken to come down here and live on the battlefield of Earth because it's one of the worst battlefields in the universe. And we are revered with awe that they bow to us. And then they get up and are thrilled to get to know us and so forth. Does it does We're that even powerful and special we are but th does that uh and this could lead in pay maybe to another hour discussion but does that include joe sixpack who watches nascar and is drinking bud light actually it does and do you know what really gets you what it includes poe paul and hitler and stalin and mussolini and Idi Amin and get my drift hmm. any soul that came to this theater to play a role gets credit for doing something unbelievably courageous. So what that did, that I would distinctly remember the book I was reading when I read it. It was the summer of 1997. I was in the depths of suicidal depression and I read that and I went like the Three Stooges. Whoa, 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 whoa. What, what, what's, what's that, what, what? You mean people understand how hard it is down here? And then I started to realize that we are a theater troupe. Yeah. 
as the Bible book of Corinthians says, we're a theater down here. Yeah. St. Paul or the Apostle Paul said, we're a theater down here. We come down here and we play different roles. Yeah. And sometimes we're the heroine and sometimes we're the villain. And right. sometimes we exit stage left quickly into the play. And sometimes we have a 104th birthday and we're a World War II veteran with everybody raising a glass of champagne to us. We yeah. play different roles. Mm -hmm. But the fact is, we're very special down here because we are part of that Petri dish. We are part of a very superlative DNA uh, creation that is unique and revered. And I guess maybe uh, leading, yeah, maybe leading into <laughs> another interview, because uh, believe it or not, an hour, we're, we're at an hour mark. It goes quick, doesn't it? Um, sure does. Do you think if, if there's different roles to be played, do, do you think that maybe part of the plan is to see, do you break out of that role or do you advance from your initial role or are you always supposed to stay the NASCAR beer drinking individual or uh maybe if that's the role you play is it to see that as you progress and let's say you get to be your 70s and 80s you mature spiritually and you've advanced from that role so here's a potential answer that i i still hold on to this bubble nothing's nothing's blown this bubble away yet when we leave an incarnation and we stand in front of the counselors, we are only asked two things, two questions at the end of a lifetime, whether it's a three-day sudden infant death or whether it's a 104-year-old veteran. The first question we're asked is, after we are shown our incarnation and we are shown the emotional reaction of every person we touched. So we're not just watching a movie, we're watching the feelings of everybody that our decisions in our life touched. And then we are asked, so Asha, did you learn what you went down to learn? And I have to answer that myself. Mm -hmm. And there's only one second question. So Asha, what do you want to work on next? And I have to answer that. So if I want to come back and be Susie six pack and just get my nails painted and be a soccer mom, I get to do it again. But if I look at the shrapnel and or beautiful products of that life and I want to keep doing it, I keep doing it. If I look at it and go, mm, I, I think I want to work on myself a little more seriously. Self-determined. The higher self determines it. We determine it. And that's when I went, oh. So if Hitler is revered for being on planet Earth, Hitler also gets to answer for all the pain that that incarnation inflicted mm -hmm. and caused. Yeah. Food for thought. Yeah, it, it gets it gets very um, multifaceted, multidimensional. It's really quantum in its thinking, if you really think through it. Right. Not linear. No, not, not linear quantum. at all. No, because in that in that illust 
in that uh, illustration or allegory setting, then you could be, it could be something as far as um, you thought it was an insignificant summer day and uh, you're in a parking lot at a fast food restaurant or a shopping mall and uh, a lady's trying to load her station wagon or hatchback and she drops some packages or the wind blows things away and you're nearby and you catch the package or you run after whatever the wind and help her get situated and get everything in, in the vehicle, shut the hatch for her and she thanks you for the kindness and you thought it was insignificant, but you find out that that act of kindness was really impactful for her because of not only the day she had and that act of kindness helped her, but you know maybe she's going through a, a death of a loved one or her husband's severely ill and she had to get back and she didn't have a moment to spare and you were there at the right time and you thought nothing of it, but it had a huge impact on her. But uh, that would be also reviewed and you would see, wow, that I didn't think anything of it, but it, it really helped that lady mm -hmm. and was significant for maybe the next 48, 72 hours. But, uh, and uh, that gets revealed to that individual. That's what you're saying. Yeah. And I, I was just telling the story yesterday. I remember when uh, my husband was finishing his uh, six weeks of radi brain radiation. And uh, towards the last week, I asked to see the radiation physicists and they asked what for. And I said, I want to talk to them. And they said, well, nobody ever asked to see them. I said, I'm asking to see them. They said, well, they're down in the basement. And I said, okay, go get them. I'd like to see them. So up come two men. One's about six foot four and looks like the greatest nerd you've ever seen. You just know he's probably an actuarial somewhere. And the other one is about 28 years old, young, looks American. The other one looks foreign. And they come down and my husband and I thank them. I said, I want to thank you for your physics and your math and your internship and your residency and your sleepless nights and your talent. And I said, I cannot, we both cannot thank you for what you've meant to keeping Jackson alive because it's your calculations that aimed that radiation into his brain to do the least amount of damage. And you're the unsung hero that are the most important medical people since the neurosurgery for him. And that taller man had been trained in Moscow. He was Russian and he'd been working in the basement at UCSD for years. That man started crying and he looked at me and he said, no one has thanked me for nine years. And I said, you're kidding me. You do this pivotal work. Your work is what makes all this equipment. One, one calculation error and you do more damage to a human's brain and people aren't thanking you. I said, that's why I wanted to thank you. I said, may I hug you? And he said, would you? And we both have both my husband and I hugged him. He was just blown away. And then the younger man, I think was maybe doing residency, but he even got a little teary-eyed and he said, nobody even knows what we do, that we're, we're just, we're not recognized. And I said, yeah. I and I said, it's so wow. sad. Yeah. Wow. Isn't, isn't that something? 
yeah. for nine years, you're mapping brain tumors and nobody says thank you to you. We have a broken medical system. <laughs> yeah, I think about that. Like like my my son, who's in uh, an FAA uh, aviation uh, air airframe and uh, power plant mechanic, that uh, there's millions of flight per year, people taking off and landing, and uh, all their lives or at the helm, people recognize the pilot. Uh huh. They don't realize every nut and bolt, every gasket, yep, every rubber fitting is a crew in a shop warehouse that keeps yep. hundreds of millions of people alive, and no one knows who they are. Mm -hmm. They're not wearing a fancy cap and shirt earmarked as a captain or a co-pilot. Of course, the pilots are extremely important and talented. But the, the ones that are certified and have gone years of school and have to mm -hmm. torque every particular bolt down at a certain PSI and lubricate and inspect the most minute aluminum or titanium part, never get any recognition, never give a second thought. Mm -hmm. And if they didn't exist, there'd be death and mayhem and the industry would absolute collapse because it'd be unsafe, mm -hmm. and untrustworthy. Mm -hmm. So he tools around, gets his paycheck, and no one has any idea. And he's, you know, straight A student, scholarships galore, star athlete, and then that's what he's doing. So if 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 only uh, more of humanity thought deeply and and showed the simplest gratitude, what an elevation mm -hmm. that would be as far as a, the uh, planet's consciousness. Precisely. Yeah. Thanks for bringing that up. Um, well, that's, that's an hour. So that's part two. What do you think the interview? Thank you. Yeah. I think you're such a good interviewer and I just love your show. I just, I love both your shows. <laughs> I love <laughs> your interviewing. Yeah. Free flow is the way to go. Well, sure. It's, it's unscripted. It's real. So it's real people. People are fascinating. Oh, I just, sometimes I think it sounds so syrupy, but I would love to just go to old folks' homes and make dates with old men and women and listen to their stories. Just say, okay, this afternoon, it's your turn. All right, Maude, tell me about your life. I did. Yeah, I did that in college. I did that for two years in college. That was one of the programs I was with where I'd visit the nursing homes every week and did exact, the exact same thing. Would sing, sing with them and Eat eat a meal with them, but also uh, interview and have them tell about their past. So that was a, that was kind of a highlight of one of my degrees that that was a requirement, and I'm glad glad that it was. But you, you know, I have to I have to convince people to interview. You know what most people say? They but like, well, I I I have nothing of interest. I, I'm not famous. I haven't invented anything. I haven't mm -hmm. accomplished. And I go, no, you're getting it. Where'd you get that from? You're getting it all wrong. Yeah. Are you breathing oxygen right now? Can you fog a mirror? Yeah. You're worthy of interviewing. <laughs> You're like, you're kidding yes. me. I go, no, people are fascinating. The story, I go, even if you think it's boring, which it's not, I, I want to hear about where you grew up. Do you have any siblings? Did you get married and have kids? And how many kids did you have? And did they play sports? Did they play the violin? Or were they always uh, breaking windows, you know, playing uh, stickball when they shouldn't have? And did, did you get in any uh, fender benders or 
what was your favorite purchase or did you did you ever uh get a scratch off ticket at a gas station and won fifty dollars? I don't care. Just what, what's your life story? Do you have any pets? Do you love cats or dogs or your you had a favorite bird? Tell me about the bird. I people are just uh I don't know why they are so hard on themselves and think that they're not worthy of an interview. And I'm like, no, you so I have to like twist people's arm, not you, but a lot of people just to get on my show. <laughs> well, and what people don't realize, every person has a book within them. Every yeah. person is, a book. not only are they in the book of life, but each person's journey is a book and it's worth, it's worth what one can learn from it. We can uh, learn from each person. You want me to tell you a, a real quick story? Sure. Yeah, I, I gotta make this fast. Okay. Uh, as a teenager, I was living in an apartment complex, and this was uh, during high school. And the uh, half, probably two thirds of the building were senior citizens. So, the what I would do is I would help a lot of them in with the groceries. If I saw them unloading their car in and out, I would shove like snow during the winter, I'd shovel the walks and spread salt so they could get out to the cars and not slip and fall. You know, Cause they're mm -hmm. to me, they seem old, but back then they were in their seventies, uh, maybe early eighties. I thought, wow, it only take a few minutes to shovel and spread salt. I'd do it before the school bus came. And, uh, one, I, I got to know them uh, real well. And one of the couples uh, below us, it turned out that he was a, a famous singer. Because I'd always hear him s singing. And I'm like, you were? And they told me the story. And he uh, grew up in New York. He was a uh, singer. And he was in a time period of the Rat Pack. So... Hmm. Uh, those of the older <laughs> listening to knows knows who the Rat Pack is, and I'll define that in a minute for those that don't know. Well, it turns out he was supposed to uh, be a, a a main actor in a musical, a, a singing film, and this was uh, when was it? The forties or fifties? I don't recall offhand. I'd have 50s. to look it up. And he, uh, he he got sick. He had uh, with his throat. He had something with his throat. He couldn't sing, and uh, he was sick for almost two months, where he lost his voice. And I, I'm trying to tell a story, and I can't remember these two things. So anyway, his underling had to uh, take his place. Because he he his voice wasn't recovering in time or shooting the film, you know who his underling was that took the the role, Frank Sinatra. So Frank oh, Sinatra's wow. career skyrocketed, wow. and and Mr. Lascala's uh, took wow, and he never got the break. That was his break, and then Frank Sinatra took. Well, I never knew that. All these years, I was shoveling their snow and helping him with the groceries. I didn't know this man's story, but I knew he had a good voice. And uh, so he was of the era of Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Sammy Davis yeah. Jr., uh, some of the others, that, that that talented era. And here, Frank Sinatra got his break, and then the rest is history. And, and uh, mm -hmm. Mr. so 
um, until you interview, you just think, I just thought that they were a nice older, older couple. I had no idea. And then he started to show me the songs, the albums and old photographs. I'm like, oh man, you were the real deal in New York back in, back in the day. And he just, because of that throat and lost his voice for two months, that's all it took. And his life went one way and Frank Sinatra's went the other. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I thought I'd share that with you. I don't know why I brought yeah. that up. Oh, about interviewing people. You just never know yeah, what kind of stories. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, thanks for coming. And then we'll have to do a part three. For sure. Love to. All right. Well, uh, we want to uh, thank Asha for being our guest uh, with the Ethereal Underground audience. And we look forward to the next episode. Like I always uh, mention on these shows, want everyone to... Uh, Get out in nature, get grounded. That's one of the the best things you can do. Decompress and try to get away from these uh, world's anxieties. Take care.